is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. When did this happen to the CNP? I used to think of them as sort of maybe being involved in, in appointing federal judges and being somewhat involved in the social Republican ag agenda in terms of, uh, you know, gay rights or something like that. But here they are becoming real activists in a way that almost feels like a, like domestic terrorism. And, and you know, how did this happen? When did this happen to the CNP? I have not seen evidence that they were involved in the armed assault. I don't know. Yeah. But in terms of finding ways to to uh, change election results, they were very involved with the the results of the of the Kerry campaign uh, when he was running for president. Mm. And there were irregularities in the state of Ohio, in particular, that CNP members were involved with that might have changed the outcome of the election. Uh, there have been numerous other cases that I go through in the book case by case with the documentation where, you know, in one case, they had somebody who was the state attorney general who said that uh, he was going to disqualify votes because they were recorded on the wrong weight of paper stock. And he threw out votes, you know, things, things like that. Uh, another area that they were very active in was the information warfare. They, one of their members, Jerome Corsi, cooked up the Swift Boat campaign Correct. and the outlets publicized it. It was utterly false. It was, uh, and it was a very damaging incident in the Kerry campaign. And again, because it was so tightly networked and it was projected on a state level, it was very hard for the Democratic National Party to contest. It's so interesting you mentioned the states. Of course, that's been their bedrock in a lot of ways. Um, there's a quote here from the ALEC. Um, I guess she's the director of ALEC, Elisa Nelson. She says, we've been focused on the national vote, and obviously we all want President Trump to win. This is as it was becoming apparent that he wasn't going to, and win the national vote. But it's very clear from all the comments and all the suggestions up front that really what it comes down to is the states and the state legislators. Um, tell me a little bit more what, what she means about that strategy. What are they, why are they so focused on the state level? Well, that's where that's the bedrock of their power. Mm -hmm. And that's because the Democrats vote uh, tends to be concentrated in the coasts and in urban areas. So that's where you have the largest Democrats. So what do you do if you're going to lose the majority of the popular vote? You look to the states where you can win and try to slice and dice those marginal votes in swing states. So as they got more and more desperate, Lisa Nelson, the person that you just described, said, well, the state legislators have to certify their electors for the electoral college. That's the next step in the procedure. So what is the next gear in the electoral process that we can tamper with? And if we can get the state legislators to, to disqualify their usual electors who have to represent the state's actual votes and say, oh, no, we'll just have electors who will go with Trump regardless of our vote, which, again, is is a, a maneuver. I don't know that it's been ever tried before in American history, but they were trying plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. And she's now talking about plan F, G and H, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. It's important to note, to note that it's still going on. I mean, we, we've got all these attempts to suppress the votes in various states around the country, um, and it doesn't look like that's going to end. I mean, there's just every effort is being made to make sure in, in, in the next election and in 2024 that we're going to have a you know as much pressure on uh, suppressing the vote and then disqualifying the results if they're not happy with it, um, as we've seen in, in the last election. You've got a majority of states that are controlled by Republican state houses. And that means that they have several instruments that are potentially at their beck and call. The Republican judges, they can pass laws that involve gerrymandering and voter suppression on various levels. And so you've got the 2022 midterm elections happening in about five minutes, mm. right? Yeah. They are on the horizon. Yeah. They've basically started. And bear in mind that if they win the Senate back, and they get a majority in the House, and they're only a few seats away from that, then they can cut everything that Biden wants to do off at the knees and make him look ineffectual and position themselves to win the whole tamale in 2024. So the thing about these people and their organizations is that they're always, they're playing chess. Mm -hmm. A lot of times the Democrats are playing checkers, mm -hmm. right? They're thinking three moves ahead. And while Democrats chase their tails and worry about, you know, important issues and Meghan Markle, uh, they're all figuring out how they're going to win the midterms mm -hmm. and taking steps. Yesterday, the Heritage Foundation's lobbying arm, the Heritage Action, announced that they were giving the first $10 million in seat money for voting, basically voting suppression in eight swing states. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be bombarding states with lobbying on state legislators and media and other actions to do everything they can to win in the midterms. And just because they were unsuccessful in the recent election, getting to the Supreme Court to overturn an election, it was a bit of a dry run for them. They were able to see what they needed to do, what new legislation they might need to institute on a state level, and what needs to happen in order for them to get to the Supreme Court successfully next time. So, you know, the, the threat to democracy is not over. We have a, a, a Democratic Party uh, president right now, but the threat to democracy and institutions is, is just as, as grave as it was before, if not even graver. Biden won the presidency through the Electoral College through 40,000 votes in three swing states. That's nothing. That's a cat's whisker. Mm -hmm. And if those votes had gone the other direction, we'd be in a very different place right now. They are looking studiously at all of the votes that they need to turn things around in their direction. That's, that's what they're busy doing. It's a number one priority. So they have at least three, but probably more Supreme Court justices. You know, it's not hard to see how, uh, you know, a successful case of the Supreme Court based on new, new laws that are passed on a state level could end democracy. I mean, literally you could end democracy as we know it at least um, if it gets to the Supreme Court. You don't know. So, yeah. The other threat seems to be that uh, the, you know, there's a possibility, at least, that the CNP is pushing for a constitutional assembly, um, which would also require a majority of, of states. Uh, is that right? Am I getting the, the is that the right mechanism that need a majority of states to get um, to get a new constitutional assembly? Uh, so there have been initiatives to to call for revisions to the U.S. Constitution, and there are various steps they'd need to go through to do that. 
from looking at their media right now, what I see them most actively doing is undercutting everything that Biden's doing. They have a big push right now to say that we're in the middle of a huge immigration crisis and that that there's an invasion from the southern border. Um, they, they will have these these ways of stoking fear and hatred and anger among their target voting blocks and and pitting Americans against each other. Mm. So that's that's what I see actually going on, as well as the state level initiatives in terms of the gerrymandering and the voter suppression. Those are very active right now. Those are, those are the key things that they're doing. So suppression is the number one thing that people have to fight um, on a state level. Um, but it does this does seem like the, you know, this is pretty a strong force that uh, people who are in favor of democracy or democracy acts of activists or just general Americans, which I, I thought used to think was everybody. Um, you know, do you, uh, Dave, do you think that there's, this, is, uh, this is being well re- understood by the Democrats, that they, there is such a threat out there? I think that the Democratic Party has been guilty of a kind of naivete where, uh, you know, they mean very well and they're trying really hard to do the right thing. They're dealing with, I think, legitimate good faith uh, divisions within the party around, you know, whether we should adopt a more uh, progressive kind of agenda or to be more centrist and that sort of thing. There's also a variety of bad faith actors that are advancing various kinds of messaging on the left that are helping to distort the situation. And you also have um, social media that I think distorts the dialogue somewhat. But that being said, um, the folks, you know, on in the CMP in particular, have had for something like at least 30 years, a pretty good understanding of a long-term planning strategy Mm -hmm. that I think that the Democrats have just largely ignored and need to really become much more savvy about. And the best time to do that is now. Um, You know, it's like planting a tree. When is the best time to do that? Yesterday. Mm -hmm. The second best time is to do it now. We need to plant a tree that will, you know, bear fruit in 20, 30 years, but even more importantly, have some effect in the next, you know, two, four, eight years, uh, because there is an immediate threat. You know, we, we squeaked by just barely, you know, this round where we can at least kind of reset and figure out, you know, how do we kind of keep things in balance? But these kinds of fourth generation, and now they're talking, you know, there's a new, there's a book about fifth generation warfare, which is really about perception hacking. It's not terribly new and there's nothing too clever about it. But the idea being that if you can warp people's perception of reality, you can pretty much do what you want with uh, politics. And, um, you know, that kind of thing is underway presently that I, Personally, my belief as an analyst is that their next target is going to be the financial sector um, and try to, um, you know, do a lot of things having to do with cryptocurrency and that sort of thing. And, you know, like that's all uncharted territory and Democrats need to get much wiser about developing a long term you know, strategy for dealing with this, but also become much more aware of what's happening right now, because I, I don't know that they necessarily are up on all of the different uh, disinformation vectors and other things that are happening in real time. I think you're, you're so right there. And, and, you know, and Anne describes in her book, uh, the amount of, of radio stations, the media infrastructure, the, the amount of money that's being poured into various campaigns, the lobbying that's going on, they seem to have a complete 
stranglehold on all the messaging that's going into those all important red states. I mean, it's very hard for even the national media that's you know coming out of New York or LA to to penetrate that because people are just so reliant on their local news structures, but also this this um, this, you know controlled environment that talk radio has become and uh, that cable news has become so you know where they get newsmax or or fox news or whatever you know whatever talk radio station they're listening to they're getting bombarded by the same message all the time and that does really well uh, perceptions you know uh, the americans listening to that message are not getting the same story that we're getting in the, on the coast that's for sure yeah and i think when you combine uh you know this kind of broad uh, media messaging with social media where people are sharing this kind of information within their social bubbles, which in turn shapes their social bubbles, which in turn shapes the stuff that they see, um, you end up creating these kind of self-insulating information environments that uh, really do not uh, lend themselves to kind of multiplicities of views and it becomes very easy to radicalize people when they become enmeshed in these kinds of uh, isolated networks. So it's, it's, it's a serious ongoing problem. We're not out of the woods. Got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. And do you want to comment on that? And then I want to get LB in with some other questions from our audience. Yes. Uh, something I talk about a lot in the book is the death of so many local professional news organizations in, in these states. Uh, you know, we've, we've gone through this huge kill off of our, of our, our journalism, U.S., Canada, Europe, all of it. And that means that, you used to have news organizations on a local basis where they would use the same wire services to establish the same uh, platform of facts in the local newspaper, in the local television stations. That's not the case anymore. And, and these areas have been abandoned by the news media. And I don't feel as a native Oklahoman that projecting the New York Times into Tulsa is the answer because, you know, frankly, People in Tulsa don't care what the best bagel in Queens is. They have other concerns like football, and that's perfectly legitimate as long as everybody's educated about the actual national issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is the vacuum that these people have exploited, where these newspapers and, and, and professional broadcasters and journalism go away, they rush in, and, and the, the so-called Christian broadcasters have become propagandists for the radical right. Uh, not all of them, but a, a, an astonishing number of them. And and as David says, the social media platforms have just accelerated this to an unthinkable level. Now, what I really lament is that it's deepening the national divide. So here, where I live in New York City, there's this discourse that the problem is Christians and Christians are irrational and evangelicals are irrational and they're the enemy and people in the middle of the country are stupid and I don't know what. Every time people on the coast adopt that attitude, they are widening the divide and they are playing into these people's hands because you know you cannot tell somebody, even if it's a white male, that they are the enemy and then expect them to vote for you, mm-hmm. right? It, it doesn't work like that. Yep. And I just believe that everybody on all sides has to think a lot harder about how to build bridges and not walls. Right. Well, there's no deplorables Agreed. in future campaigns. Um, LB, uh, what are the what's everyone saying in the chat rooms? It's a really smart audience. So um, they're 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 contributing to the conversation more than asking questions. But I will say there. I did see some sort of sentiment, and maybe this is the best way to sort of, because we're closing in at five o'clock, to, to throw to, to both of you. I was 
happy to hear you say, I want to mark this, that Anne called uh, uh, January 6th an armed assault. So languaging even in for our past events, even recent past events, is so, so very important because we're still, we're in a, a narrative framing warfare for the past, even the recent past, especially where it exposes the vulnerabilities of of, uh, uh, of this sort of uh, dynamic that we're talking about here and, and these other forces that are very anti-democratic. Um, so th there's a, a concerted effort on the anti-democratic side of things to reshape what January the 1st, or, or January the 6th was. And so I think that kind of languaging like what Anne just did is so, so important for everyone to be uh, sort of consistent with and get our messaging together. Um, you know, it, it, what Dave had to say about planting a tree and the Democrats are just woefully naive about all this. You know, it's it just, they, they cannot see this propaganda machine. I think they can feel it. I think they could see bits and pieces of it, but it's very difficult to wrap one's minds around this kind of coordinated, methodical, uh, long-term planning that has been going on now since uh, easily the early 80s um, to build up to a moment to, to what? So that's sort of the big question that I'm sort of seeing hinted at around here. There was some Tea Party stuff. I think you guys got to come back on. We got to talk about what the Tea Party was and how much of that is a part of what we're dealing with right now, um, especially with Jenny Thomas and some key players, but, uh, and the armed assault and the, the insurrection. But what's their goal. If you could say, Anne, what are we actually up against? What do we need to figure out how to fight, not just in these individual ways, but as a threat? What are the stakes? What's the goal of these anti-democratic forces um, like the CMP? What are, they up, what are they up to? I believe it is to consolidate their power and influence to the point where they can enshrine an autocratic state. So you, if, you, if you have enough gerrymandering and voter suppression where you activate your vote and suppress the other guy's vote, and Paul, Paul Weirich stated that this is what they were going to do, and then they did it, right? So then you win the elections and you say, we have taken power through democratic means, and then you continue the process and eliminate the opposition vote and enhance yours through all of the legal and political and media means that you have. And soon you have absolute power and you have a revolving door of your own people at, at the head and you pass the policies that favor your economic interests and disadvantage the little people who are not billionaires. And there is the story of empire, which has been repeated many times in human history. We just didn't want it to happen here. Is it about um, a white ethno state or is it about um, money and resources and, uh, and fossil fuels? My opinion is that it's more about money than it is about race. It has roots in race and ugly sides of America's racial history. But I see a lot more emphasis on, on economic issues. And I also want people to be aware that Recently, David Koch has been on a charm offensive saying that he's not interested in partisan politics anymore. Well, Ali Alexander in 2010 got his beginnings in the Koch operations. Then he went to the Council for National Policies Leadership Institute 
and the people who have been running the Council for National Policy and 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 the operatives, such as Jenny Beth Martin from the Tea Party Patriots, um, are are part and parcel out of the Koch Empire. So I just would hate for people to be taken in by a public relations campaigns. The Koch brother, the Koch Empire is is very powerful in this picture, and they bring along with them a lot of the fossil fuels interests. Didn't you also say? I would that, also. So go ahead, Dave. Yeah. Oh no, I was just going to say I would also add that like these people are perfectly comfortable with Clarence Thomas and Herman Cain and Ali Alexander and Ben Carson, you know, because they help to advance the interests and they're considered part of their, you know, club and part of their ability to advance these interests. So it's, I I agree with Anne. It's not so much about a white ethno state, although it does have roots in that uh, realm. And there are probably elements of that, that they're using as part of their coalition. But overall, you know, this is about money and power uh, above all. Absolutely. It seems like that's the case. I mean, kind of Ali Alexander being the head of a white nationalist uh, uprising just doesn't make sense. Um, but, and you also in your, in your article were really astute about pointing out uh, the change of, of leadership with, which happened in 2019 when Tony Perkins was the previous uh, head of the CNP and then Bill Walton took over. Uh, in 2019. And that's when their strategy seemed to shift from social conservatism to real activism. Yeah, I think it was not an abrupt change because they tend to have the president on deck mm-hmm. in previous years. So so Walton was in line, but Walton comes directly out of the Koch brothers donor world. Right. You and mentioned that he's got an investment firm or something like that, a venture firm yeah. that he's tied to the yeah. Koch brothers. He's a vent no, no, he's a venture capitalist, but he was he participated in the Koch brothers seminar. Uh, donor group for for a long time. That's where he got his start in the business. So remember, what you needed in 2016 was to activate fundamentalist voters. Tony Perkins comes out of the James Dobson empire. He's a Southern Baptist pastor himself. And it was all about getting out the evangelical vote for Trump. And they did that. Now they're shifting and they they're much more focused on economic interests. And Bill Walton and the Tea Party Patriots and Freedom Works don't really have a, a religious profile. I, I've scoured their websites and and you know uh, it's much more about dollars than Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just don't think that you should even try to separate them. One right. hand washes the other. But it is a point of attack, you know, in terms of the Democrats. They, that is a weakness that they could try to exploit if they, if they focus on how much it is about money interests and not so much about uh, the religious piece of it. That, that could feel like a bit of a distraction in some of their, their campaigning. In short, this is about ending democracy as it was established by our founders and turning us into, with the skillful manipulation of language, uh, a state where uh, leaders are picked by select few and installed, and that's it. Mm. And then they'll do, they're owned, they're puppets, and they will do, uh, pass whatever legislation, do everything that Trump just did. Yep. You know, you put me in power, I'll give you whatever you want. You give a shit. So I, I, that's that's what it's about. And we see it replicated everywhere. Those yeah. are the stakes, those are the stakes. You're seeing it replicated everywhere. 
and that also means the end of freedom, right? I mean, there's also, we're not talking about just democracy. Democracy is a nice term, and we like to think about voting, but, you know, it comes along with suppression of free speech and a lot of suppression of other rights yeah. um, that, you know, uh, it just, I don't think we realize in, in America how fortunate we are to have those rights and how easily they can be taken away. And when they are taken away, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's soul crushing for everybody. Um, and yeah. there's a real, uh, you know, people don't always see that the fight for democracy is also about the fight for freedom. And uh, we're pretty close to losing a lot of the fundamental freedoms that uh, we've all uh, loved about America. And that's, you know, the reason I moved to America was because of those freedoms uh, from South Africa. And then to see them being, you know, disappearing is, is quite frightening. Um, Dave or Anne, we've got some, well, let's do closing comments from both of you. Um, Dave, why don't you go first? Well, I guess, you know, from my perspective, it's the biggest frustration with trying to deal with some of this is to try to convey to people the nature of what's going on. And part of it is that it's just incredibly complex and it doesn't lend itself to very good narrative storytelling. So I've been struggling to try to find narratives that will reach people and help them understand kind of the nature of what we're dealing with. And I think the, the on the plus side, there's a sort of buffet of different narratives that you can pick and choose that, you know, actually do tell a pretty good story. But uh, to get through to a lot of people quickly is really hard. And so, um, I think that there's still a sense um, in kind of the popular imagination that this was kind of just a weird one-off and that, you know, it, it just kind of was a situation that got out of control when I think that, in fact, this is something that was, you know, pretty well planned and that was part of a broader coordinated effort. And, um, you know, not to the point of becoming super conspiratorial about it, but, you know, there's just evidence that we need to explore. We need to get about it. And we also need to see that justice is done. People that that initiated this stuff need to be brought to justice. Otherwise, I think we run a real risk of people losing faith in the system that, you know, when people plan and do bad things, you know, that, that try to subvert our government, that they're not brought to justice just strikes me as... Um, one more reason why people might become, you know, disheartened and uh, disillusioned with American democracy and make them more inclined to go along with some kind of authoritarian populist scheme. So, you know, I think we have to press the pause button here and figure out what happened, make sure the right people are brought to justice. There have been a lot of people brought to justice, but we need to do a lot more. And it's quite urgent that we figure out how to do it. And getting uh, Mary Garland confirmed would be a, a good first yeah, step. Yeah, it'd be a good start. Absolutely. It looks like it's taking some time. Anne, your, your final thoughts for tonight? Sure. Uh, my previous two books were about anti-Nazi resistance movements in Berlin and occupied mm -hmm. Paris. And so I lived with those stories for many years. And what I found was that there's part of the population that's passive. And I've been sorry to see that in the United States as well. You know, people who who wake up five minutes before the election and think that's good enough. And what you see on the other side is this relentless, unceasing uh, operation that continues to build and grow and strategize between the electoral cycles. They don't go to sleep. And, and then uh, they have a methodical way of accomplishing their goals. And what I've learned from all three of these books is that if you value your freedoms, if you value democracy, then you've got to work and even fight to defend it. Mm -hmm. And it takes effort, it takes time, it can take money, whatever you have to offer uh, can be used. But if it's not deployed with a strategy and an understanding 
of the opponent, then then you're just uh, indulging in political theater, and we can't afford to do that anymore. Absolutely. Certainly, certainly can't. Um, great having you both on the show. The book is called Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right by Ann Nelson. It's out in paperback now, and uh, and that's correct, right? It's out of paperback. People can order it. Uh, yeah, in May. In May. in May. In May. Okay. In May, you can order it, but you should get on there quickly and order it now ahead of time or get the hardcover. It's a fantastic read, really intricate. I haven't finished it yet. I have to confess it kept me up late last night, but it's, uh, it's a remarkable story um, about how the right was overtaken by the CNP. Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative.